Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to hear you speak to us. Where else could we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Prepare our hearts now to receive your word. Open our ears to hear you. Help your servant to speak boldly and clearly and work in us by your Holy Spirit. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our sermon text this morning. Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 11. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 946. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What is the most important question a person can ask in this life? A question which is not only important to ask, but to answer, and to answer correctly. I would submit that the question is not, what college should I go to, or what career should I pursue, or who should I marry, or what house should I buy, or how many children should we have? The question is not even, does God exist, or what is the meaning of life? Certainly those are all very important questions. The most important question is this, how can I be made right with God? Because if you get this question wrong, 
Nothing else really matters in the end. If you are not right with God, if you do not have what the Bible calls righteousness, it doesn't matter if you have the right career or if you achieve great happiness in this life or even if you have all the right theological views. If you are not right with God, you will surely perish and perish eternally. What matters is this. Are you righteous? Are you in a right relationship with God? And that is the central theme of our passage this morning. You may also recall that Paul introduced righteousness as the central theme of this entire letter back in chapter 1 when he wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Of course, we can look at this theme of righteousness from different perspectives. What Paul primarily describes with the term righteousness here in our passage, it can also be described as salvation, or we also call it eternal life. So far in chapter 9, we've looked at this from the perspective of God's sovereignty in salvation. God is the one who elects those whom he will save from before the foundation of the world, and then in time he calls us to himself. But as Paul has also demonstrated, God's sovereignty in salvation does not negate human responsibility. We are responsible for our actions, and God will judge every man for his sin. In our passage this morning, Paul is shifting from the focus on God's election and calling to the means he uses for our salvation through our faith in Jesus Christ. So we'll consider our passage this morning under four headings. And in each of the first three sections, there's a contrast between two kinds of righteousness. These two kinds of righteousness. First, there is the righteousness of the law. This is self-righteousness, which man tries to work up for himself through obedience to the law. But this is impossible. Said against this is the righteousness that is by faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God and is received as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. In these first three sections, Paul continues to make his argument from the Old Testament scriptures showing that both the law and the prophets bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness by faith in him. Then in verses 9 through 11, we come to the application, a call to believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so that you might be saved. I challenge to you this morning as we work through this text is to ask yourself this question. How can you be made right with God? This is the most important question you can ask. Where does your righteousness come from? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your own efforts at law keeping? Or have you given up faith in yourself to trust in another, to put your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone? So first, Jesus Christ is The stumbling block, verses 30 through 33. Our passage begins with the rhetorical question, which Paul often uses to introduce a new section. 
what shall we say then? If you'll recall last time, the previous verses, Paul was showing that the prophets had predicted exactly what had come to pass in his days. That the Gentiles had been welcomed in and God had saved a remnant of his people Israel. While this isn't what the Jews had expected, God had been faithful to his word. He had done exactly what he had predicted. And now Paul reflects on this tragic irony. Continuing in verse 30, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Here we see this striking paradox between two peoples, two pursuits, and two kinds of righteousness. While the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness, it came to them by God's grace through the preaching of the gospel. This is exactly what Paul had said earlier, chapter 9, verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God had had mercy on these Gentiles who were not searching for him. In contrast, then, we have Israel. They did pursue righteousness. They did ask the right question, how can I be made right with God? But they had answered that question wrongly. They have pursued righteousness through the law. They have been zealous for the law. They have not been able to actually keep it. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Paul is not denying here that we ought to obey the law, nor is he denying that perfect law-keeping does truly lead to righteousness. However, as he has shown over and over again, such perfect obedience to the law is impossible for sinners, and all have sinned. Only one has kept the law, and the only way to righteousness is through faith in him and in his perfect law-keeping and not through your own imperfect law-keeping. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here Paul quotes an amalgamation of two stone verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16 and 8, 14 and he's saying they refer to Jesus Christ. Now, first, the location of this stone, it's in Zion, that is, Jerusalem, right in the heart of Israel, the holy city. This is where Jesus came, where he lived, where he died, where he rose again. This is also where the gospel was first proclaimed. But it's also where it had been mostly rejected where Jesus had become for so many a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And of course, you can see how the gospel of free grace, which says, you can't save yourself, you need a savior. This gospel is an offense if you want to justify yourself, if you want to earn your own salvation, if you want to merit your own righteousness. This gospel says, I have nothing to boast of because I'm nothing but a sinner saved 
by grace. There's actually a third stone verse in the Old Testament, which Jesus himself quotes and says it refers to me. We recently saw it in Ron's series on Luke, Luke 20, 17 through 18. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Peter, in his first letter, brings all three stone verses together in one place when he writes, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 10. All these Old Testament stone verses which point forward to Christ are double-edged. The question is, will Christ be for you a stone of stumbling, a rejected cornerstone which will ultimately crush you? Or will you embrace him And will he be for you your chosen and precious cornerstone, the firm foundation of eternal life and righteousness through faith? Christ is the stone. He will be either one or the other, either the stone of stumbling or your precious cornerstone. Second, Jesus Christ is the culmination of the law, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 10 opens with Paul returning to prayer for his fellow Jews. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This reminds us of the opening verses of chapter 9 where he wrote of his sorrow and anguish over the unbelief of his kinsmen and how if it were possible He would be accursed and cut off from Christ if it would mean their salvation. You also see here that while Paul understands that God is sovereign in salvation, this does not in any way undermine his zeal for prayer and evangelism. He recognizes God will save those whom he chooses, but Paul will continue to pray and preach, and we must do the same. Then he describes, again, the problem with Israel from a slightly different perspective. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. As Paul describes Israel here, he is likely remembering his own former life as a Pharisee, filled with zeal, but not according to knowledge. 
His zeal for the law actually led him to persecute the church, to persecute Christ's own body. And zeal without knowledge is insufficient. As the common saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good intentions alone, zeal alone, will not save you. You see in verse 3, again, a contrast between two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness of God versus their own righteousness. If you are clinging to your own righteousness, you will never be able to receive the righteousness of God. It's not that the Jews did not know that God is a righteous God. But they had rejected Jesus Christ and his gospel. For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in, the righteous shall live by faith. They did not accept that God is both righteous and the one who justifies, that is, declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus, Romans three twenty six. Moses had warned Israel long ago not to trust in their own righteousness. Do not say in your hearts, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5. While Paul had once trusted in his own righteousness, he abandoned all that when he put his trust in Jesus Christ. And so he writes in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Zeal without knowledge produces only worthless self-righteousness. It only leads to boastfulness and pride. And God will cast down the proud heartedness. But the humble, he will lift up. What you need is the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Then Paul writes, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This verse stands out because Paul is saying here that the Jews had missed the entire point of the Mosaic law because they didn't understand its end, which is Jesus Christ. There's some dispute about how we should understand this word end here in this verse. In Greek, just like in English, The word end can mean the termination of something, just like you speak of the end of a book or the end of a movie, or it can also mean purpose or goal. Like when we ask, what is the chief end of man? We are asking, what is man's purpose? 
what is man made for? And we answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that Jesus has brought the Mosaic law to its termination? Or is he saying that Jesus is the goal and fulfillment of the law? To that question, I answer yes. Paul is saying both. Douglas Moo gives the illustration of a race. The finish line is both the end of the race, but also the goal of the race. The purpose of the race is to reach the finish line. And so in the same way, Moo writes, quote, Christ is the end of the law in that he brings its error to a close and its end in that he is what the law anticipated and pointed toward. Jesus said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying it on our behalf. But he also brings the era of Moses to an end when he institutes the new covenant by his death and resurrection. The law of Moses was always pointing forward to a greater prophet to come, a greater and perfect sacrifice, a greater high priest, a greater Davidic king. And now at last Christ has come. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of the law with the result that righteousness has now offered to all who believe in him. But now to continue with the law when its end has come is not possible. For that is to reject what the law was pointing forward to all along. This is Paul's main argument in his letter to the Galatians where he writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3.23-24 So here he's saying Christ is the end. He is the culmination of the law. He fulfills it. He brings it to an end. And now he offers righteousness to all who put their faith in him. Paul's third point here, the gospel of Jesus Christ is near you, verses 5 through 8. In these verses, we again have a a comparison between two kinds of righteousness. Now in terms of a contrast between something that is impossible and something that is not only possible, Possible, but something that is downright simple. First, righteousness through law keeping is impossible. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Here, Paul is referring to Leviticus 18.5, which lays out the principle of the law. Life and blessing is contingent on personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. If you keep the law, if you do the commandments, you shall live. But the reverse is also implied. If you break the law, you will surely die. Now Paul has already established in this letter that no one can keep the law. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 9 and 23. But he is not the only one 
who recognizes this. Leviticus 18.5 is also quoted by both Ezekiel and Nehemiah in recognition that Israel has continually failed to keep God's law and has forfeited their right to life. The bottom line is this, and it's recognized all throughout the scriptures, righteousness through law-keeping is impossible for sinners. In contrast, righteousness through faith is possible. It is accessible, simple. It is right in front of you. But it's not necessarily easy. So Paul writes, verse 6, The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Here Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, which we read earlier. In the original context, Moses is speaking about God's law, which had just been revealed. Ascending to heaven or descending into the abyss are proverbial for impossible tasks. And Moses is saying, you don't have to do these things. You don't have to go searching for God's law. Rather, it is near you. And so you cannot evade responsibility for it. And now, Paul applies this to the gospel, which is the fulfillment, the culmination, the end of the law of Moses. Just as no Israelite could plead ignorance of God's law revealed through Moses, now Paul is saying, no one can plead ignorance of the new revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul also intersperses his quotation with his own commentary. You don't have to bring Christ down from heaven because he has come down. He has taken on flesh in the incarnation. You don't have to descend to the abyss because Christ has been raised from the dead in the resurrection. The word of God is proclaimed. You are hearing it today. Will you embrace it? In contrast to the impossibility of righteousness through law-keeping, this righteousness can be received so simply through faith. It's possible. It's accessible. It's downright simple. It's right in front of you. That I would submit, it's not necessarily easy. It requires repentance. Repentance of your wickedness and sin, yes. But also, repentance of the filthy rags of your own good works. Repentance of your own attempts to earn your own salvation. Requires you to die to yourself and cast yourself on Jesus Christ and him alone as your Savior and your Lord. It's so simple. And yet you must trust not in yourself, but trust in another. You must simply receive God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. This gospel is near you. It's right in front of you. That's the application. Believe and confess Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. 
Then in verse 9, Paul picks up on those same two elements of mouth and heart as he writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He follows the order from Deuteronomy in verse 9. Then he reverses the order in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Belief and confession, the two are intimately connected. Logically, we would say, belief in the heart comes first, and then out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Of course, Paul is clear that the most essential element is faith. It is by faith alone that we are saved, but how can a living faith not speak? How can a heart full of faith in Christ not overflow and confess that Christ is Lord? And now we must ask, what must you believe and confess? First, that Jesus is Lord. This short phrase is absolutely loaded with meaning. To say Jesus is Lord is to identify Jesus Christ with the Lord God Almighty the I am that I am, the one true God. Cranfield writes, the confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and the nature, the holiness, the authority, power, majesty, and eternity of the one and only true God. Second, you must believe and confess the climactic gospel miracle that God raised him from the dead. Christ not only died for your sins, he has conquered sin and death and risen now to everlasting life. Paul says that if you believe and confess these things, when you stand before God's throne on judgment day, you will not be put to shame, but rather you will be justified. You will be declared righteous you will be saved. He concludes, quoting again from Isaiah, with the assurance that this good news is for all, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. In God's providence, we have one of our covenant children coming to make her profession of faith this morning. She will come forward to make her, to to declare to the world this morning that she believes that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. She's already confessed privately to her friends and family that Jesus is Lord. And now as she professes her faith publicly, the elders are also giving their testimony that they believe she is a genuine believer with the marks of a true faith in Christ. And she will receive the reassurance that Christ himself gave in Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. She will be reassured if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So I ask you, is that your confidence this morning as well? Is Christ your precious cornerstone? Is he the foundation of your life? Have you received from him righteousness and life through faith alone? He is right before you this morning. Receiving him is simple. All it requires is repentance and faith. Cast yourself on him today. And he will be your righteousness. He will be your life, your salvation. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news that we have heard this morning. This good news that your righteousness is offered to all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning for any who have been trusting in themselves, seeking to earn or to work up for themselves their own righteousness. Lord, we know that way is impossible. That way leads nowhere. And Lord, we pray that you would bring conviction of sins, conviction of lostness, and that need for a Savior. That Jesus Christ is the only way and that he is the only righteousness, he is the only life. We thank you that he has come, he has fulfilled the law, he has borne the penalty, and he has risen again, and he lives and reigns. We thank you for this incredible gift. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.